Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Friday, January the 7th, 2022. It is currently 1.48 p.m. Central Time, and, well, we have arrived at the moment you have been waiting for. I know you probably stayed up all night going, I cannot wait until Friday when, for the Bible study exercise, we finish the sermon review. I know you have been waiting and waiting and waiting. You probably called in into work and said, hey, I can't come to work today because today is the day they're going to finish the, the sermon review for the Bible study exercise. And your boss was like, wait, wait, really? That's when it's going to happen? Okay, never. I'm shutting down the business. Everyone can stay home because the, no, okay. Obviously, probably none of you have been waiting like that. But yes, we have arrived at that moment where we are going to take this sermon that we have been reviewing and we're going to bring it to a dramatic conclusion. Now, to be honest with you, to say that I'm going to bring it to a dramatic conclusion is more just hype. It's more, it's more just teasing that you'll listen to everything because you, you have to hear that dramatic conclusion. There's a, there's a great, possibility that it's not going to be that dramatic of a a conclusion. It may turn into very much a letdown because let's remember, I don't have a clue how this sermon is going to end. I don't even have a clue what's coming next, but I do know based off everything we've heard so far, I have a feeling it's only going to get worse. It's not going to get any better. Now, some of you may think that what we've heard is absolutely wonderful and great, that's that's perfectly up to you to draw that conclusion. I'm not here to argue with you. I've pointed out what I think are some serious issues and how the text has been handled. I obviously have a very different philosophy about preaching. I am not one of those who's like, hey, let's just grab a commentary. This is the position I'm going to go with. Let me just write this all down in my notes and let's stand behind the pulpit and just preach this like this is this is how you interpret it. This is the answer instead of going, hey, guys, we're in Micah chapter five. There's about 5,000 different ways of approaching this text, a little bit of hyperbole. Uh, and we're, I'm going to have to mention all of them, and I don't know how dogmatic we can be about anything. That's more my approach. But yes, it is time once again. Bible study exercise, Micah chapter 5. We are reviewing a sermon on Micah chapter 5, and I am hoping that this sermon review is actually benefiting everyone in this way. As we hear things in the sermon that really just ignores some of the problems, I think it's causing people to stop what they're doing and spend even more time digging into the text. And if this sermon is causing everyone to dig even further into the text, really trying to to hammer down exactly what is going on so that they understand it, then by the time we're done with this sermon review, and hopefully by the time we're done with this week of Bible study of Micah chapter 5, we're going to walk away going, you know what? I don't have all my questions answered, but I definitely understand uh, Micah chapter 5 better than I have ever understood it in my entire Christian life. I'm hoping we have at least accomplished that. I have given you a complete book overview of the book of Micah. So hopefully in something that we have done this week, you can say that you have benefited greatly because that's what we're, that's what we're going to try to do every single week. 
of 2022. We tried to do it week after week in 2021. And I, I hope you're, you know, in telling people about what we're trying to do, inviting people to participate. I know, I know a lot of people would not like what we're doing, but I, I think, I think there's some people out there really starving to really dig into the text, of, uh, to be a part of something where they can ask questions. They can struggle to try to figure it out. Now, I have to make some decisions right now, all right? Because I want to finish this sermon review. I really do, because we've got so many other things to get to. Now, in order to get through this, it's 29 minutes and 17 seconds left. If I go back and try to work through everything again, in Micah chapter 5, Looking at verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. If I try to go back there, is it Hezekiah and the Assyrians? Is it Zedekiah and the Babylonians? If I try to work my way through all of that again, I'm going to look over and it's going to be 20 minutes into this episode. It's going to be 20, 25 minutes, meaning that I will only have like about 30 minutes left to finish this review. And there's no way I'm going to finish 29 minute review if I do that. So, all I can say, if you're brand new, you need to go back to my, uh, Bible study exercise, Micah chapter five, part one, and listen to everything that has uh, happened up to this point, And then you'll have a good idea. I have backed the sermon up to the 16 minute mark. We stopped at the 19 minute mark. He's going to once again, kind of give his kind of an interpretation of verses five through six. We're going to just listen to it again. If you're a part of the Theology Central Discord group, we've been talking about verses five through six. People have, have, have someone went through and gave like a summary of most of the, a, a large number of commentaries on how they all handle verses five through six. Let me just say this, and I said it jokingly in the Discord channel, but let me say it here seriously, all right? The, the reality is, if you take all of the commentaries and you look at all of the different approaches to verses five through six, the conclusion you can come to is that no one really knows for sure. It's just speculation. I mean, the commentaries are doing the best they can, but when you have like commentary after commentary, well, this one says this, and this one says this, and this one says this, and this one says this, when you see that much disagreement and you don't really see any you know, one view that seems to dominate all of the commentaries, that's a good sign. That's a warning sign to you that you should not be dogmatic. So we're going to at least listen to what he has to say. I'll throw in a few comments about verse five through six. And I really would like to do more work on it. But the goal is to bring this sermon review to some kind of hopefully a dramatic conclusion. Remember, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't listen to this sermon in advance. So it's just as much a mystery to me as it is to you. That makes it fun. Hopefully it makes it exciting and hopefully this will be beneficial. If you are listening live, please feel free to jump in at any point, ask questions, offer observations. Sometimes you may hear something in the sermon that I don't even hear. So feel free to share your thoughts at any time. And um, well, let's let's just jump in. Are you ready? So we're listening to a sermon, Micah chapter five, because that's the chapter we have been studying all week for the Bible study exercise. We are 16 minutes into the sermon. The pastor that is preaching is getting ready to go to verses five through six. He's going to spend probably about two to three minutes on verses five through six, which is just absolutely astounding to me. He's going to spend five, uh, two to three minutes on five through six, and he's going to basically just offer one kind of an interpretation that he doesn't really explain, doesn't even really justify, 
it, it's really bizarre. And then he's just going to immediately move on to verse seven. Um, it, it's like anyone listening to this, I don't really know what you could walk away going. Oh, that's what verse five through six means because it looks like you would walk away going, I don't even know if I really understand what it means, which if that is the what happens when you preach, then well, then you've probably, you probably needed to spend more time on that section. But here we go. And maybe the reason he didn't want to spend much time on it is because, well, there's so much disagreement, but he doesn't even mention that there's so much disagreement on it, which is actually not good for the people in that congregation or people who listen to this sermon that's posted online. All right, so are you ready? Here we go. Micah chapter five, have your Bible open, have a notebook ready to go. If you're listening live, hit the little chat icon on the Spreaker app and share your thoughts at any point in time. Here we go. Now in verses five and six, this too is continuing the future hope, the coming Messiah in his reign. It may not seem like it, but it is. Let's look at verses five and six. And this one... Once again, talking about Christ shall be peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. Micah is making clear Christ's kingdom will encompass all the nations of the earth and will be victorious. Okay, now, a couple of things. He points to, this is a future fulfillment. He points that somehow these verses are saying that Christ's kingdom is going to be victorious over all the world. Now, what kingdom, he, he's never, I don't think he's ever truly identified what kind of, I think, well, I think he kind of has identified I think he's referring to a spiritual kingdom. He's not looking towards an earthly, an actual earthly kingdom where Christ rules and reigns in Jerusalem. I think he's looking for a spiritual kingdom. So Christ's spiritual kingdom will be victorious over all the world. Now, again, he doesn't explain what, what does that look like? What does that mean? Are we, is that, is that, is that, is it happened right now? Are we witnessing it right now? And again, it goes into, I, it sounds like at times that he's coming at this from an amillennial perspective, but let's let's just see what he does here because that's that's just, I mean that's just a big claim that okay th- that what this is saying is that Christ's kingdom is going to be victorious over all the nations of the world and this is going to be done somehow spiritually. He doesn't do a lot to try to justify anything. He's going to offer a couple of justifications, and when he does, remember this is a Bible study exercise. I know it's Friday. But I'm getting ready to give you a an assignment that should not take you very long, but I think it's an important assignment to teach you a very important hermeneutical principle, and you'll you'll see that in just a minute. So you want to pay close attention, all right? Because you are going to get an assignment in the middle of this. I know Bible study exercise—that's the way it works. I do some of the teaching, some of it I hand it to you. You're about ready to get an assignment, so just be paying attention when he says these things in verses 5 and 6. Micah is using Assyria figuratively here. All right, we get to your assignment. Okay, I told you it was coming up. He makes a dogmatic claim that Micah is using Assyria 
in a figurative way. This is not speaking of literal Assyria. This is speaking of Assyria in a figurative way and an allegorical way that Assyria here doesn't mean Assyria. It means something else. It's used in a figurative way. Now that's a big claim. That is a massive claim. So here's what I, here's your assignment. First, I just want you to look up every place in the Old Testament where the word Assyria or Assyrians is used, right? I haven't, I have not even, I have not even looked myself. I'm not going to do it now because again, I want to finish the sermon review. Just look up every, every place in the Old Testament where the word Assyria or the Assyrians is used. I want you to just take, to go to each reference. It should only take you just a couple of seconds. Look at the verses that come before, look at the verses that come after and just say, from your initial look, for every time the word Assyria or the Assyrians is used, is it being used in a literal sense or in a figurative sense? So you would look up, you know, wherever the first uh, occurrence is, you would write down the scripture reference. You would go look up that scripture reference, look at the verses that come before and look at the verses come after and say, based off just a surface level reading, I would determine that this is used in a literal way. You would put an L or you would put an F in a figurative way. All right now, after you've looked up all of them, I would like you to determine how many times is Assyria used in a figurative way? How many times is it used in a literal way? If 99.9% of the time it's literal, 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 then what, what gives you the textual or what gives you the hermeneutical right to come in and go, oh, in, in this passage and Micah 5, oh, that's figurative. Now, let me just say something. The Assyrians in verse five, that's not literal Assyrians. That's not the little literal Assyria, according to the sermon we're listening. It's figurative. Okay. Well, wait a minute. When it goes back, let's, when it goes down, so that's verse five. And verse two, when it mentions Bethlehem, is that literal Bethlehem or figurative Bethlehem? When it mentions, uh, but thou Bethlehem Ephratah, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, is that literal Judah or figurative Judah? Now, you, I, I, and just keep going back. When it mentions uh, Babylon or Jerusalem in chapter four, literal or figurative? But and, and because I, I'm just, this is very important because this is this is a game preachers play all the time, and many people in Bible study. It's like, oh well, I don't know what to do with this. It's figurative. Well, who gives you the right? Like you just. It's just weird how Christians handle the Bible. They just think they have some like God-given authority just to say, that's figurative. Okay, why? What's in the text that says it's figurative? Why? What's there? What's there? All right, so before I ever believe when anyone tells me that, then I just go, well, let's look at how the term is typically used. If it's used, again, 99.9% of the time, if it's literal, 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 then the predominance of the evidence would tell me that I should carry that interpretation even into a passage that seems difficult and complicated, unless there's just something screaming at me in the text going, no, 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 no. Clearly it's not literal. Clear. Fine. Fine. If it's not, then I've got no problem going with a figurative understanding. I just gotta, I just think it's weird that I'm gonna jump to figurative in five, but I'm going to argue dogmatically for literal in verse two. Remember, verse one, 
Uh, now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. That's literal. Literally gather yourself in troops, Judah. Why? Uh, he hath laid siege against us. That's a literal siege. Either it's the Assyrians or the Babylonians. So it's a literal, a, a literal. Now think about it. It's a, and according to this preacher, the one that we're listening to, this is a siege from literal Assyrians. So the siege of the Assyrians is literal in verse one, but the Assyrians in verse five become figurative. So the, the Judah is literal. Gather yourself for an actual literal siege by an actual literal country. And the judge of Israel uh, is going to be smited in the cheek with a rod, literally going to be humiliated. Bethlehem is literal. A literal child is going to be born. Uh, it's going to come forth there for in Judah. He's going to be the ruler of literal Israel. Now, he's kind of already kind of made Israel spiritual and not literal Israel. He's already done that a couple of times. But you just see how weird it gets? So I just want you for your own, and you may say, but what's the point? The point is you'll learn that you have to do this. There's so many times... Israel will be mentioned and you'll have a preacher going, well, that's not literal Israel. That's not the nation. That's figurative Israel. That's spiritual Israel. That's made up of Jew and Gentile. I'm like, wait, how, when, how did you jump to that conclusion? So what I did for my church to just get them prepared for this kind of, these kinds of problems, as I made my church, we spent, I think it was close to six months, maybe even more, maybe three months, maybe four months. I don't know the exact time frame, but week after week, Church service after church service. You know what our church service consisted of? We came to church. We may, we may do a little singing, right? And then it was like, grab your concordances. All right, everybody ready? All right, we're gonna go through every single usage of the word Israel in the entire Bible. <laughs> we're gonna, and we're gonna write down whether it's literal or whether it's figurative. And that's what we did for church service after church service. Okay, and it was over like 3,000 usages. And we determined that almost 98, 99% of the time, the only way to even make sense of the passage is it had to be literal. And so they were like, well, wait a minute. Then maybe every time we see Israel, we should think of a literal Israel, literal nation and not some figurative spiritual thing. That's what we did. Now, people will still argue. And what's crazy is people will still argue with me. I'm like, and so every time I say, well, have you spent the time to go through the text and look them all up? No. Well, then don't argue with me. I want you to do that with the Assyrians. You determine. Literal, figurative. Look up every usage. Literal, figurative. Literal, figurative. I know you're going to think like, this is a ridiculous exercise, but I'm telling you, it is useful. For those who are part of the Discord channel, you can, whoever, whoever does it first, you can post it and then it'll be for everybody. Okay. Well, everyone will have to trust your work. So hopefully you're a trustworthy person, but whoever can do it first, that will be awesome and great. And then everyone can already have the, the scriptures there and then they can go through and then determine if they agree or disagree, if it's literal or figurative, that that could be an interesting discord, uh, uh channel group. If you want to be a part of the discord channel, just email me newsif at yahoo.com newsif at yahoo.com, and you can participate in these very interesting conversations, which is adding to our study, all right? So there's your assignment. I, I should just stop right there, but I'm not, because I want to finish this. I know we're not getting, see, I, I, I want to bring this to a dramatic conclusion. We've got a long ways to go. So there you have it. I just want you to hear that. Now he's going to offer his reasonings for this somehow being figurative, right? And, and he's going to tell you what this is figurative of, 
Basically, and this is common in some of the commentaries, that Assyria here is not literal. It's figurative of all of God's enemies. It's just figurative of all of God's enemies. It's not actual literal Assyria. But in chapter 5, verse 1, okay, that siege, if you believe that that's referring to Hezekiah and the Assyrians, oh, that's literal Assyrians. So it's like this verse literal, this verse figurative, all within one chapter. And you just get to magically make that determination. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what uh, is called preaching in many churches today. How do we know that? Well, because we know this because it never happened historically. Now, remember his argument. We talked about this yesterday. Hey, the, we, the reason we know this is figurative is because this is describing something with the Assyrians that has never happened. And because it's never happened, it has to be figurative. Let me make it very clear. <laughs> that's like reading, hey, that's like it, reading a prophecy and say, well, that prof- prophecy has never happened, so it has to be figurative. So if you were around in the 700s and you hear the prophecy that a virgin is going to have a child and uh, this child is going to be called Emmanuel, God with us, you're like, well, you know, it's been 100 years. It's never happened. That must be figurative. It's been 200 years. That must be. It's been 300 years. That may, Anytime a prophecy is given, it hasn't happened yet until it does. So you can't say, well, hey, we look back. This never happened. Has to be figurative. Ha- has to be. Has to be. Can't be literal. Can't be literal in any way. Because it has. His argument is because it hasn't happened yet. It has to be figurative. It can't be literal. What a textual justification. Again, just apply that. Here's a, hey, uh, do, have you read prophecies about Jesus coming back again? Has he come back yet? No. Well, must be figurative, can't be literal. There you go. That, that's, that's that hermeneutic. Hey, if you see a prophecy and it hasn't happened yet, well, then it has to be figurative. Can you imagine what the Bible would look like if we applied that hermeneutic? All right, so let's continue. Number one, there wasn't some guy who came back and beat up on the Assyrians, okay? There was none for Israel. It's still continuing to talk about Christ. He being the deliverer, he being the one who would expand his kingdom throughout the earth. And I'll just throw this in there. Is it possible, I'm just gonna throw this out there. You can tell me whether you agree or disagree. Is it possible that there's a prophecy Somewhere in the Bible where Christ is going to return on a horse with a sword and just going to lay waste and destroy enemies. Is that, is that possible? Is, is there any prophecy of that? Can you think of one anywhere, anywhere in the Bible? Maybe like the book of Revelation. All right, let's continue. We must remember the prophets routinely addressed those they were speaking to and referred to the future in terms drawn from their own historical circumstances. So here they are surrounded by the Assyrians. The Assyrian army was made up of men from many nations. Remember that? I talked about that in an earlier sermon. Christ's kingdom will conquer them all is what Micah is pointing to. He even includes, to appeal to those he is preaching to in their current circumstances, the land of Nimrod. Do you know what this is referring to when it says there? 
They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. The land of Nimrod is where Babylonia resided. That was their search situation. Micah is pointing out that the Messiah's rule will conquer all nations. Is Does the Bible have any prophecies of some kind of a future Babylon? Can they think of anything future? Now, I, this is where I wish I had people here in the congregation, in the sanctuary this, this afternoon. I wish I had a, a full sanctuary because I would just literally stop and say, hey, is there, can you think of any future prophecy in regards to Babylon? Do you, can you think of any future prophecy of Christ coming and destroying his enemies? Any, right? Okay, good. Well, one, one, uh, some, someone is listening, all right? So I, I think you can immediately start thinking, I can think of things possibly related to the future regarding Babylon. I can think of things related to the future of Christ destroying his enemies. I'm not saying it fits everything perfectly right here. I'm not saying it does, but it's just not a good hermeneutic to say, well, wait a minute, this has never happened. Therefore, it's figurative, right? Okay, and uh, yes, I already know what you think. Uh, one of the people listening, uh, because I, I just, I just don't see. Even if you look, you can either argue for a past fulfillment, and then, you, but if you can't find any history to 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 prove it, then you've got to abandon the past fulfillment. But you can't just say, well, it can't be literal because that hasn't happened yet. So it's all figurative. And it just speaks of Christ's kingdom destroying all of his enemies. Well then, okay, let's say it's figurative and Christ's kingdom is going to destroy all of his enemies in a spiritual way. What does that look like spiritually? Are we witnessing it right now? Are, Are all of enemies Christ being defeated by his kingdom now? Are you talking about a spiritual defeat of all of the enemies in the future? You've got to, you've got to define and identify what you are talking about. And he obviously hasn't done that, but we've got to move on. All right, we got to move on. Here we go. Both the Assyrians who were attacking them at this time and also the Babylonians who they were wrongly making league with, they would all be defeated by Christ's kingdom. And there's that accusation again. There's that accusation again that um, Hezekiah had made uh, some kind of alliance and looking towards the Babylonians to help them with the Assyrians. That he's, he's made that accusation a number of times. He's yet to, he's, I don't know if he's ever offered anything as proof. I don't think he's offered anything. We went through the history of Hezekiah showing that when he saw the threat of the Assyrians, he called for Isaiah the prophet. We saw that he prayed to God for uh, help. We, we, it seems that he handled himself in a very godly way. Now he does mess up with the Babylonians at some point, but it seems that that happens after the Assyrian danger. So, but uh, again, and I think we had one, uh, one Bible dictionary says that there's no proof that he ever made any alliance with the Babylonians. I, th- I think we had one, one Bible dictionary dogmatically assert that there's no proof of that. He doesn't offer any proof. He just dogmatically keeps blaming Hezekiah for trying to make an allegiance with the Babylonians to defeat the Assyrians. He just keeps constantly making that, that accusation. And it's like, if you're going to make the accusation, back it up in some way, shape or form. Okay. But all right, let's continue. He's using the Assyrians figuratively to show that Christ's kingdom will conquer all the kingdoms of the earth. Remember Daniel 2? Go listen to my sermon if you forget what I'm talking about. Extremely important. 
Now, in verses 7 through 9, by the way. And there you have it, 5 and 6. I mean, he doesn't even, he doesn't even scratch the surface of all the issues per- pertaining to these verses. He does, he just, it's just absolutely, it, it, it really is just frustrating. He doesn't even really deal with anything. It's, it just, I don't, I don't even know how we describe that. But if we, if we, see, I'm going to get bogged down here and want to stay with five and six. We got to finish the sermon review and then maybe we can come back and do some work on five and six. And I don't know if I have any definitive answers, but I know that that's why I've given you the assignment to work on the, with the Assyrians. Because if you, if everything you find is, oh, it's the Assyrians are mentioned in a literal, 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 literal way, then this has to be literal. And if it's literal, not past, then it has to be literal future. There's your only options. Okay. So, all right, let's continue. I wanted to mention when it talks, then we, we will raise against them seven shepherds and eight princely men. Simply talking about the fact that God uses numerous people in order to accomplish his purposes, namely us. I don't want to go all into that because you get bogged down in some of the minutia. Wait, okay, so, all right, newsflash, everyone, okay, here we go. This just in, breaking news. Oh, I wish I had my news uh, intro ready to go. Uh, Breaking news, breaking news. Um, seven shepherds and eight principal men mentioned in Micah 5, 5, we just discovered that that's referring to us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what? I thought, so Christ's kingdom, spiritual kingdom is going to defeat all the nations and it's going to be done through us. It's going to be done through us. So, all right, I, man. I, I I literally feel like I'm sitting back in a, 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 an all-millennial school learning all-millennialism. That's what I really feel like I'm, I'm, I'm here, and, and it can be maddening at times. The, the, one of the reasons I, I was able to somehow embrace all-millennialism a little bit back then is because my view was, you know what? I don't care about eschatology. Eschatology, nobody agrees. It's crazy. It's confusing. I'm just going to focus on other areas of theology. So I'm, I kind of ignored eschatology. And then one day I kind of woke up and go, wait a minute. It's not about eschatology. It's about hermeneutics. And once I realized that eschatology is an argument about hermeneutics, it's not an argument really about the end times. It's about how do you, what hermeneutical principles are you going to utilize when handling passages in the Old Testament dealing with Israel and these prophecies about land and how am I going, what hermeneutic am I going to use? Once I removed it from eschatology, like, you know, eschatology, oh, you got left behind and you got dispensationalism and you got just, I, I decided ignore all of that. How do I handle the text? And so then I, I started doing things like, well, let's look up, say the Assyrians, literal or figurative. Okay, wait a minute. Let's look at all the verses around. You say that's literal. That's literal. Well, how all of a sudden in the, how, how can you in the middle of a chapter jump to figurative? See, that's hermeneutical issues. That has nothing to do with eschatology. And so once I kind of, then I started changing my views on eschatology because I said I have to be consistent with my hermeneutic. You can't have, you use one hermeneutic in every other area of theology 
and then you get to eschatology and you abandon that same hermeneutic that you used and all of those other areas of theology. It doesn't work. The, the hermeneutic you used in every other branch of theology must be the same hermeneutic that you use in eschatology. That's the way it works. Or you've got a schizophrenic hermeneutic and that's not good for anything or any one. All right, let's continue. So let's cover verses 7 through 9. It says, Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, that tarry for no man, nor wait for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, who, if he passes through, both treads down and tears in pieces, and none can deliver. Your hand shall be lifted against your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. Wow. Okay. Now, let me just tell you, I've got to change my approach a little bit here. Not my hermeneutic, okay? Don't, I'm, not, I'm not getting ready to change my hermeneutic. What I mean by I have to change my approach and our review. Because what I would like to do right now is listen to what he has to say about verses 7, 8, and 9, and then immediately jump to well, notes that have been sent to me. Well, by, by I've got the notes of the person who's currently listening or, or the person I know who is listening. I don't have the st- statistics in front of me of how many people are actually listening. But um, I could go to their notes and go, well, this is what they found in this commentary. That's what they found in this commentary. I, I, but if I do that, we'll never finish. So I'm going to have to just... I'm going to try to see what he has to say, and then I, I may try to throw in a couple of thoughts, but the goal is to try to bring this to some kind of conclusion. The way he's moving through these verses at such a rapid pace and just throwing out one kind of dogmatic assertion is really not beneficial, but it's beneficial in the fact that he's giving us his view, but it's not beneficial in really digging into the text and trying to figure out what it's all about. So just if, if I know you're going to be like, well, wait a minute, we've got to really work on that. We probably do, but we may not be able to do that right now in this review. All right, so here we go. I'm going to try. I, that's my plan. I may, I may completely go against my word in just about 30 seconds. All right, here we go. So here we see within these three verses what life will be like after the Messiah comes and commences his kingdom upon the earth. These three verses present the people of God in two very different perspectives, don't they? Okay, now, when he says the Messiah is going to come and commence his kingdom on earth, what we need to determine is he's referring to an earthly kingdom or is he referring to a spiritual kingdom? Is he referring to Jesus coming back on a horse, destroying the enemies, establishing the millennial reign, reigning from Jerusalem for a thousand years? Okay. Or is he referring to a spiritual kingdom? In other words, the kingdom is right now. The, the, like in, 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 in all millennial idea, the millennial kingdom is going on right now where we're really in the millennial right now. Okay, is, is that what he's going with? And it's all very spiritual and it really doesn't look like anything like the Old Testament prophesies. Now you have to spiritualize all of it, make everything figurative and it can't be literal. Is that where he's going to go? That's what we have to figure out, right? But he seems to, 
he kind of just spoke of that as something in the future, but is he saying future for them? In other words, when Jesus comes, he will establish his spiritual kingdom. And then that's when these verses are fulfilled. So these verses have already been fulfilled or still being fulfilled right now in our lifetime. It's not necessarily a future thing. It's a present thing spiritually being fulfilled. Is, Is that the direction he's going to go? On one hand, we're viewed as dew and showers. And the other hand, we're viewed as what? Lions and young lions. Notice both verses are in the future tense, shall be. Notice that we are referred to as the remnant of Jacob. Perhaps of Jacob because he was lame, remember, from fighting the angel. And remember 4.6, the last chapter, refers to the lame being gathered in when Christ commences his kingdom in the earth. How he goes to the weak, to the foolish, wins them to his kingdom. We are called a remnant because we are in the midst of many people like the dew, it says in verse 7. Okay, so we, we believers are the remnant of Jacob, shall be in the midst of many people as a dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass that tarrieth not for man, nor watereth for the sons of men. So the way he's interpreting this, and the remnant of Jacob, that's us, that's, 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 that's Christians, shall be in the midst of many people. We're going to find ourselves in the midst of many people um, that are as the dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass that tarrieth not for man, nor waiteth for the sons of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles. So as a believer, I'm going to be among the Gentiles. I bet you the Gentiles here is going to be figurative. Gentiles is going to be a term to, to describe lost people. And the remnant of Jacob is going to be used not to refer to Israel, but it's going to be used to refer to all believers. So everything's getting ready to get very, 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 very figurative and spiritual. If my amillennial training, if, if I, if I remember my amillennial training correctly, that's where I think we're getting ready to go here. I think, I think that's the direction he's going to go. All right, let, let's continue. And verse eight says we are in the midst of many peoples like the lion is among the beasts of the field, amongst all these sheep. In other words, all right, among many people, he's using a translation that obviously doesn't use the word Gentile there. He's u- that uses many people, all right? So um, if you put the word Gentile there, then, then you would have, you, I guess you'd have to make it figurative. If you just say many people, then you, you can continue to say, we, we are the remnant of Jacob. We're the remnant of Jacob. And then the many people are all, uh, are all the lost people. And then you don't have to term the term Gentile. It would be I would be interesting to look at how many translations use Gentile and how many do not. That would start getting us going down that path. But let's just see where he's going to go. There's not a lot of us. We are scattered among the many, like dew, like the lion. And yet his kingdom conquers. Look what verse nine says: "And your hand shall be lifted against." Now. Let me just throw something out. Is it possible? I'm just thinking this through that the remnant of Jacob is referring to actually, well, Israel, Judah. It's actually referring to them. When Jesus comes, they were going to be a a small in the midst of all the people. And then we know what happens. 
right? 70 AD, boom, they're destroyed. The temple is gone and they are scattered amongst all the people. The remnant of, of Israel is scattered among all the people. They are a small thing. They are in the midst of all of these people. And, 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 um, and, and not only are they scattered among all the people after 70 AD, they stay scattered among all the people. They're small in number. They're insignificant. Then they are, they suffer horribly, obviously under the Nazis. They are finally gathered back into their land, but they're still in the midst of people who hate them and want them destroyed. Now, um, the person listening, are you referring, I think, are you referring to the 144,000 in the book of Revelation? I, I'm, I'm, I'm referencing just Israel, the Jews, literally from the time of Christ, literally till now, there's still a small number around. In fact, look at, look at the nation of Israel. Just look at it on a map. Little tiny Israel surrounded by people who hate them. All right. Um, the, the 144,000 being the due. Um, and the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people as a dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass that tarrieth not for man. I, I don't know if I can go. I, I don't know right now if I can go there. I get, and, and, and I guess my thoughts are, I'm just looking at it from a very, very just literal way. I guess that's the way I'm looking at this. That the remnant of Jacob is Israel, Judah, okay, that even at the time of Jesus, they were small in number. They were they were under the control of Rome, right? They they were in the midst of all of these people. Then seventy A.D. occurs. They're destroyed and scattered all over the place. And that even today, the Jews are in a sense still smaller in number, scattered among all the people. And even Israel is surrounded by all kinds of people who wants to destroy them. Now, if we move it towards Revelation. Maybe we could do something, we could look into that a little bit more, but that's the way I'm kind of looking at it at this at this time. Now, I got to do something really quick here because uh, after so many messages show up on the computer, they all start disappearing. Okay, so, okay, so I, I hope that makes sense. I hope that makes sense uh, to the person listening. I hope that makes sense. I I, I think it's, Brilliant that you're bringing in the 144,000 kind of idea. Cause if we go find the identity of the 144,000 and how they are described, I think that's an interesting concept that I had not even considered or thought about. So since I've not given it enough thought, I don't want to say something that I could be horribly wrong about, you know, later. So I, I hope that make, I hope that makes sense. So I'm just seeing it that, okay. Uh, Micah 5, 2, we have Jesus coming, right? And if we keep this in some kind of, now I, I do it now. Okay. Now we, we, we talked about this, trying to keep this in some kind of chronological order is very diff, is very difficult. If we do move this to some kind of end time situation in revelation, we probably, we possibly could make this somehow work maybe with the 144,000. So Actually, the person listening may have a better insight to this than I do. I'm trying to just go, well, Jacob is always, and the remnant of Jacob has been in the midst of all the people. That's kind of been there. They've always been the small number amongst the larger group. So I, I think that's, 
So there's a lot of different ways we could go with that. All right, let's see what he does. He doesn't really explain much anything. He makes it about us, which is just fascinating. Hey, the remnant of Jacob is us. Christian, you're right there. You're right there. It's just amazing that, hey, not only are we the remnant, we're also the uh, seven shepherds and the eight principal men. I, I didn't even know that I was mentioned that many times in the book of Micah chapter five. It, it's always amazing how, how, uh, and this is one of the things that bothers me so much about certain aspects of amillennial theology is they'll go into the Old Testament where clearly it seems to be referring to Israel. Clearly it seems to be a promise for Israel and be like, nope, sorry, that's not for you. That's for us. You, you, you know, too bad for Israel. And it's like, whoa, what gives you the narcissistic arrogance to just go rip things out of context and make it about you. Maybe this is actually about the actual remnant of Jacob. Could it be? Here's here's a question. Um, How many times in the New Testament are Christians referred to as the remnant of Jacob? That's just a question. Uh, Yeah, again, he's just making claims. He's not doing anything to back up any of his claims. He just, it's just, this is the kind of preaching that just drives me nuts. It's like, this is just, this is the way it is. (laughs) But clearly it's not the way it is because I guarantee you there's not a comment. There's there's so much disagreement in the commentaries about these verses that you almost have to laugh. It's like, it's like, here's how the commentary, here's how the commentaries work. You put all these theories on a, on a, on the wall and you just take darts and throw at it and go, Oh, there's one. There's the one I'm going to go with. And it's, it's like, you've got to acknowledge that in the preaching, but he doesn't Let, let's continue. Since your adversaries and all your enemies shall be cut off. His kingdom conquers, even though he uses this small number of people who know him in the earth. Notice verse 7 says that we are like dew and showers that tarry for no man nor wait for the sons of men. See that there? This word tarry does not mean delay. Rather, it means in the Hebrew to look for something with eager expectation. In other words, what is accomplished through his people in the earth is the result of his divine graciousness, omnipotence, and providence. Now, I do have to throw in this thought. All of a sudden, this is becoming about us. What, what, what hope? Remember this, originally, this was like, no, in the midst of this great threat from the Assyrians, according to this preacher, or this great threat from the Babylonians, he offers them hope. But he's not offering them hope if all of these promises ultimately become about us and stops being about Israel, stops being about Judah. (laughs) Hey, hey guys, I've got some good news for you. I'm going to give you a lot of promises that have absolutely nothing to do with any of you, okay? Because we don't care about you. You're finished. It's going to be about us. It just seems awkward here. Yeah, um, God is going. Now, again, if we go to a millennial kingdom idea, is Christ not going to come back, defeat all of their enemies, and then Israel be restored back to the land, and then all of the promises fulfilled to them? Wouldn't that be then the ultimate fulfillment? Yes, you've been set aside because of your rebellion. You've been set aside until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Then these things have to happen. It just just seems like it's really weird that, hey, this was a message of hope for them. Wait, time out. I'm sorry. It's about us. It's about us. It's about what Christ Christ is going to defeat all of our enemies. 
We do not look to man to get the job done. Our hope is not in man or his manipulations. Understand? And finally, notice the dew and the rain refer to his divine goodness and graciousness, while the lions and young lions refer to his judgment and his inescapable punishment. Why would that be so? Why would on the one hand we see dew and rain referring to his divine goodness and grace, and on the other hand be referred to as lions and young lions, which refers to his judgment and his inescapable punishment? Two very different perspectives. As soon as I read this here, my mind immediately went to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Turn with me there and let's look at this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. <laughs> okay. I. All right. I'm going to listen to this. There's a lot. I mean, he's just making like, oh, this is what this represents. This is what this represents. And now we're jumping to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Like his, his method of cross-referencing blows my mind. It's just like. Uh, we've already seen him do it before. He's just like, hey, look, this passage talks about a woman having a baby. It's it's connected. And you're like, it's not connected and it doesn't have anything to do with each other. Okay, so now we're going to go to 2 Corinthians 2. All right, so now here's the question. In 2 Corinthians 2, is Paul saying something with Micah 5, verse uh, 7, 8, 9 in mind? Is, is he making a reference to it? Is, is, he, is he giving an illusion from it? If he is, then does that change how we interpret Micah? Or is it just that Paul is using the language to make a completely different point? Remember, sometimes in the New Testament, they will grab something from the Old Testament and simply use the language, but to make a completely separate point that has no connection to the original text. And it doesn't mean you go back and reinterpret the original text. I spent weeks talking about uh, in our, I think in our study of Romans and how the New Testament writers use Old Testament passages and they do all kinds of weird things with the Old Testament passages. So, and, and, and we have to understand all of those rules and why they did it. And then what does that mean for us when it comes to hermeneutics? But um, I can't go through all that right now. Let's see what he's going to do in second Corinthians. Here we go. And let's read verses 14 through 16. Some of you already know what it is. Some of you are waiting with bated breath to see what it is. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. And then look what he says in verse 15. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one We are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. Amen? The lions and the young lions, we're like, that's the aspect of his judgment and his punishment. Those who refuse his message, his rule, we're like death to them. Right? Those who believe his words, who accept his rule, bow to it. We are like the dew in the showers to them. We are good news to them. We are life to them. Right? What's amazing about this, when this is all talked about here, when Paul uses this imagery about this fragrance 
of his knowledge in every place. It's actually a military term in the Greek that the Romans would use regarding their generals. Whenever a general would actually conquer an area, there would be this triumphal entry into the area where the general could come in with his entourage and his enormous amount of troops and march in. Everyone in the conquered territory had to attend this march. Whether they liked his rule and saw him as a deliverer or whether they hated his rule and despised him, everyone had to come. And along this marching parade route were, was the incense of the general. Every general had his own different smelling incense. We make known Christ's incense to the men of the earth. Amen? Through the pre- I'm just so, so confused. Why, why is it all about us, 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 us? This is about the, the remnant of Jacob. This is about a promise to Israel. This is a promise about those facing the, 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 the dangers of either the Assyrians or the Babylonians. What, what, what has this got to do with us? I, oh man, okay. All right. I'm just going to try to, we've got to finish. We've got to finish. And it's just becoming, it's now becoming a little irritating now. Okay. Because he's just like, now he's going off about incense and, and, and a sweet smell. uh, And, and somehow this fits with lions and, and dew. Lions and dew fits with sweet smelling savor because, okay. All right. Here we go. Preaching of his word and gospel through the declaration of his law and gospel. Amen. Some like it and submit to his rule and praise him. Others despise it. They hate it and do all they can to overthrow his rule. Understand? That's exactly what Mike is talking about back here in verses 7 and 8. It's making that same kind of comparison. How we're grace and goodness to some and how we're judgment and inescapable punishment to others. This is how his kingdom works in the earth. And now the final verses, our duty, by the way, is to make sure we make his, his fragrance known. I know in American Christianity we've reduced that to putting our church label on a water bottle and passing it out to people so they'll like us. Because that's what Christianity is all about nowadays, is being liked. Complete absurdity. We have a duty to declare his law and gospel. Call men to repentance. Hey, make sure if someone is thirsty and you give them something to drink, make sure your church label is not on the bottle of water, because, man, they would like you for that, and we would not want people to like us for giving them something to drink. I mean, that's the last thing. If you see someone thirsty, what you should do is walk up to them and say, hey, I know you're thirsty, but I need to give you law and gospel before I give you something to drink. That's that's <laughs> that's the way... That's I, I think I think there was something in the Bible about if you see someone hungry or in someone in need that you you preach to them before you feed them or give them something to drink. I I, I can't remember. I, who knows? It's probably not in my Bible. It's I, I probably was reading the wrong Bible or something. All right, let's continue. It's in faith. We're not always liked when we do that, but that's what we're called to do.
His word is a double-edged sword. So in verses 10 through 15, the final verses of the chapter, these verses also speak of the messianic hope of the future. These verses speak of the importance of holiness in the lives of the people of God in order to see the defeat of his enemies in the earth. Whoa, 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 time out. The importance of holiness and the life of believers in order to see the defeat of the enemies. Did I hear that right? If I'm not holy, the enemies of God will not be defeated? Did, did I, okay, may, maybe, I, I, there's no way he said that. Okay, maybe I misheard this. All right, I got to back this up. I got to back this up because now that, there's no way. There's no way he said that. There's no way he meant that. There's no way. Let me hear that again. Also speak of the messianic hope of the future. These verses speak of the importance of holiness in the lives of the people of God in order to see the defeat of his enemies in the earth. The importance of believer, the importance of holiness in the life of believers or in God's people in order to see the defeat of his enemies on earth. (laughs) All right. Hey, you know why there's so many enemies of God is because you haven't been holy enough. If you were holy enough, then God would defeat all of these enemies. But the reason the enemies are everywhere is because you're not holy enough. So Christians start being holy and we could get rid of all of these enemies. It's all your fault. You're not holy enough. Is this the same thing as, hey, the reason you're not healed is you don't have enough faith. How, how holy does one have to be in order to see the defeat of God's enemies? How, I wonder how holy do we have to be? 50% holy, 60% holy, because I know one thing, none of us is going to be 100% holy. So is there a percentage mark? Hey, oh, I've made it. Oh, look, 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 look. Boom, there goes the enemies. I took them down with my holiness. Or is this a promise of God stepping in and getting rid of all the evil in Israel when he purifies them, purges them, and saves them. I I, I don't know, but let's see where he goes here. In this final passage, verses 10 through 15, Micah addresses three forms of apostasy. Trusting in one's military prowess and technology being number one. Number two being magic and occultism in the land. And number three being idolatry. I want to make it very, very clear because I may not be the smartest person in the world. But in fact, I know I'm not the smartest person. It's not that I may not be. I know I'm not the smartest person in the world, but I am pretty good at reading. I'm pretty good at reading. All right. That's the one thing I was always good at. So let me just read this and see if there's something I'm missing. And it shall come to pass in that day. There's a day coming, saith the Lord, that I, God speaking for himself, God is going to cut off thy horses out of the midst of thee, and I will destroy the chariots. I will cut off the cities of thy land, 
and throw down all thy strongholds, and I will cut off the witchcraft out of thine hand, and thou shalt have no more soothsayers. The graven images also will I cut off, and thy standing images out of the midst of thee, and thou shalt no more worship the work of thine hands. I will pluck up the groves out of the midst of thee. I will destroy thy cities, and I will execute vengeance and anger and fury upon the heathen, such as they have not heard. This sounds like, from my reading, that God is going to be the one doing all of these things. God is going to do it. In that day, there's a time coming. When, when does that happen? How, how do we understand that? These are common to all nations, not just Israel. Common to all nations. Not just Israel. Look what Micah says. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that it will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. In other words, they were trusting in their military prowess and their technology. Remember the cities? The book of Micah started with Micah prophesying to the northern Kingdom capital, Samaria, and the southern kingdom capital, Jerusalem. Why? Because most often this is where evil effuses from is the big cities. Just look at America today. Where does the evil tend to effuse from? From the big cities, from the capitals especially, right? Where law and policy is established and then is forced upon the people. The rebellion against God, the rebellion of the magistrates. So I will cut off your horses from your smiths and destroy your chariots. You're trusting in all this stuff. I will destroy that. But he's not just talking to Israel. He's talking to any and all nations because all nations do this. Our nation's drunk on this right now. He's talking to all nations now. Now, he's talking to all nations when he says, and it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off the horses out of the midst of Thee. So all of a sudden, now in the text, we've jumped from Judah, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, to it's it's been us, 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 us. Now he's talking to all nations. It's just, it's like now, it's, it's like the text is just Plato. You can just make it say whatever you want. This is why, let me make it very clear. This is why some skeptics and unbelievers, when they hear this, They're like, that Bible prophecy stuff is a bunch of garbage. You make the text say whatever you want it to say. You don't even try to figure out what it means. You just make it up. You can just say, well, that applies here. That applies here. That applies here. See, Bible prophecy. That's one of the ways we know the Bible's the word of God. Yeah, because you can make it say whatever you want it to say. It's like, well, does... so in, so in verse one, now gather thyself and troops, O daughter of troops. Remember, that's Judah. That's Ju- So specifically speaking of Judah in verse one, but before we get too far into the text, it's no longer Judah he's speaking of. He's speaking to you. He's speaking to me. And he's talking now about all nations. Just, just, just magically, it just goes from boom, boom. It just jumps all over the place. Jumps, 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 jumps. And we get to just determine where it is and what it applies to. It's, it's, it, it doesn't even feel like hermeneutics. It just feels like, just, just make up the story as you preach it. We're so bad, we'd be America. 
You know, nobody can beat us. We are arrogant, prideful, pompous people. We're disgusting. It's wicked. So he goes on here and he says, I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no soothsayers. This is the second form of apostasy, magic and occultism. When men leave God, they run to a new religion, often to the supernatural and occult practices. The people of God are to have nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with those things. Holiness is important to see the enemies of God defeated in the earth. The church in America is so weak in our day, and it's... Let me make it very clear. Holiness is important because God calls us to be holy. But whether we're holy or not holy, God will defeat all of his enemies... Because he is God and he will bring judgment upon the ungodly. Whether I'm holy or not holy. Like, like you can't put this like, man, God's up there going, man, I really like to defeat some enemies today. But whoa, those people in Texas, that's a really unholy church. Can't do anything. Can someone, can someone send a message to that church in Texas that there's a lot of enemies that need to be destroyed, but you guys are just not holy enough. I've, I don't think I've ever heard holiness put forth in this way. Holiness is required. And as he goes, the church in America is so unholy. I bet you that's where he's getting ready to go. Here we go. It's weak because it has embraced the presuppositions and practices of the world. We need to repent. We need to purify ourselves. Now, please note, the text says God is going to do it. He just now flipped the text and said, we must purify ourselves. We must do it. The text says God is going to do this, and all of a sudden now it's become about what you must do. Here's what, the text says this is what God is going to do, but now it's about what you must do. Isn't, it, isn't that interesting? Hey, this is what God is going to do. I'm sorry, God is not going to do that. You have to do it. You. Well, that's... That's kind of interesting. Of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, procure holiness in our lives, without which the scriptures say no man shall see the Lord. Uh, Let me help him out. You're right. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And the holiness I need in order to see the Lord is a perfect holiness. Oh, yeah. And it's a holiness that I can never acquire based off my actions of what I do or don't do. The holiness that is required to see God is a perfect holiness. And I acquire said holiness by faith, not by purifying myself and trying you know, beat myself and say, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try harder. I'll never be holy enough to see God. The holiness he demands is the holiness he provides in his son, Jesus Christ, by imputing his holiness to me by faith. What in the world? Forget Micah. He's now destroying the gospel 
it, right in front of our very eyes. And this is this a, a Roman Catholic message? Is this a Roman Catholic? Did, 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 are we listening to a Catholic church? <laughs> what what in the world is this? In verse thirteen, he goes into the third form of apostasy. He says, "Your carved images I will also cut off, and your sacred pillars from your midst. You shall no more worship the work of your hands." The third form of apostasy is idolatry. Men trust in things other than the Lord. All nations and peoples do this, not necessarily idols made with hands. All nations have what Micah refers to here as, quote, the work of your hands, unquote. And the work of our hands can be things other than little images we fashioned with our own flesh and blood hands. It can be anything we put before the Lord or above the Lord, His people must put him first. Holiness matters. What is the great idolatry of our day? It's the worship of the state. Men worship and trust the state here in America, and it is utter idolatry to do so. Christ brings freedom, liberty to the individual, and he brings it to nations His economy is not a statist hell like we live in in America. Well, wait. Christ? Christ's economy? Christ has an economic system? Christ's economic system is not a statist hell that we live in. I didn't know I was living in a statist hell. Did did you know that? I I, I didn't know. I didn't know this. I I didn't. Whoa, wait a minute. When did I end up in a statist hell? I, I... I, I didn't know this. I did. Christ hasn't. I bet you. I bet you. Christ economic policy is capitalism. What do you bet? What do you bet? I bet you that Christ is a capitalist. He is a Republican. He probably has a Make America Great hat again, and he probably tells you to buy America first. He probably tells you do not buy a product that's not made in America. He. he pro- what in the world has happened? All of this text is what God is going to do, what God is going to do. And now this is turning into what you must do. And now I guess it's going to turn into a political message. Wow. But I am telling you, he, he, he literally threw the entire gospel of, of being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because Christ alone. He threw it literally under the bus. Basically saying, if you don't acquire holiness, you're you're not going to see God, and the way you acquire holiness is by purifying yourself. So you're so you're going to be saved by how holy you can make yourself. This is Roman Catholicism. Where everyone looks to the state, trusts in the state to take care of them, wiping their butt from an infant, blowing their nose as an elderly person till the day they die. That's not what God intended. Whoa. Okay, God God did not intend this. God did not intend socialism. God did not intend this. He intended the American system, right? The the Republican, conservative American system. Oh my goodness gracious. What in the world has happened here? Okay, no, no, no. I no. I, the, the person who recommended or didn't recommend this sermon, 
mention this sermon, to be fair. They're th- saying, I tried to warn you. No, you did warn me and thank you. But I, I even though this is bad, this is bad. Um, there, there's going to be a lesson in this. There's going to be a lesson in this. Okay. There's going to be a lesson in this. All right. Um, oh, and now, oh, oh hey, someone's get, helping us with the economy. Okay. <laughs> Someone tells me that you get paid more than $90 to $100 per hour for working online. We get more spam in our comment section. Oh, I got to love that. Okay. So, but no, no, no. This is actually good. This is actually good because as much, I'm going to get frustrated here and I'm going to start throwing things all over the church. And then the people, people who come into the church on Sunday are like, what in the world happened? And I'm going to have to blame a certain individual. I'm like, it's their fault. They, they suggested this sermon, but this is actually going to be important to see. All right. There's going to be a very important hermeneutical lesson that we are hearing right, right now. So let's finish this. I know we're over in an hour. I know that, but that's okay. All right. We got to finish it. All right. Here we go. That is not the function and role of the state. Remember, Israel was doing well financially at this time. Do you remember that? Wait, Israel was doing. Israel wasn't doing well at this time because Israel's already been taken over and destroyed by the Assyrians. I don't. He keeps using these terms so indiscriminately that I don't even know what he's talking about half the time. Are you referring to Israel generically or are you referring to Israel, the northern kingdom? The northern kingdom wasn't doing well at this time. They'd already been gone. They were destroyed. So are you saying Judah was doing well at this time? Are you saying Judah's doing well because this is the time of Hezekiah? But if it's Judah under Zedekiah, they're not doing well because they're giving money to the Babylonians. So, so what? I don't understand. And, all right, let's continue. Remember I talked about that in chapter one? They were doing tremendously well financially at that time. And what did it produce in them? Pride and arrogance. Why? Because wealth always does that. And what I mean by it always does it to men generally, not every man exactly. There are those who are able to procure wealth and do right with it, but they are a small, small minority. I just have to laugh because uh, from uh, pastors when like, hey, you know, money can really mess people up, but, 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 but not everyone, <laughs> not everyone, especially if you're sitting in this pew and you give money to this church, you handle money. Great. You do a wonderful job. It's, I, I know I'm not saying that that's what he's doing, but I just know that with, as a pastor, you have to, it's almost like pastors will always like, put on the brake. Okay. I got to say bad things about how people handle money, but I got to make sure that I don't say everyone because I want to make sure that anyone who has money doesn't get offended and will keep giving me money. I'm not saying that that is just sometimes you have to laugh as a pastor because I do realize that, that, that I try not to know what anybody in my church gives. I don't ever want to know. I don't want to know. I don't want to know a name. I don't want to know anything. I don't want to look. I don't, I don't look. I don't, when I need to know how much money is in the bank account, I just ask the people who take care of the money. They tell me how much, and I'm like, okay, we need to do this. I don't want to know who's giving. I don't want to know who's not giving. I don't want to know who ties, doesn't. I don't want to know anything because the minute you know it, then you'll have a tendency going, ooh, I don't know if I should preach on this because that may offend them, and they give money. So it just when I hear that kind of thing, I, I kind of laugh because I know in, in the mind of a pastor, as much as you don't want to think about it, 
It's hard not to think about it because you do realize if they stop giving, that could be absolutely financially devastating to the church because in many cases, the church is basically supported by the giving of a few people. And and when a few people, one of that person pulls out, it, it can be absolutely the end of a church. It's sad the way it works, but it's it's there's a lot of not thinking. I just have to kind of give you about the behind the scenes. How as a pastor, when I hear that, how I how I hear it, which would be different than how you hear it. Wealth produces pride, arrogance. We see it, don't we? When we go out and speak up for our preborn neighbor, we go out in a nice area, right? Like to Brookfield, Whitefish Bay. And what do the people act like? They hate us, give us the finger, despise us, say filthy things about Christ. We go to the poor areas like the north side of Milwaukee, south side of Milwaukee. How do they respond? Vastly different. What is that? What happened to that baby? Right? Everyone who's done ministry on the street sees it. I've watched it for years. So things you may recall were going great in Israel. Remember what I said in, in Micah 3? I just got to throw in an alternative perspective. I did work at a homeless shelter, okay? And the homeless shelter had a rule that before you could eat, you had to go to chapel. And some, sometimes I, I, I got the opportunity to preach there for chapel. And I, I well, uh, yeah. Uh, let's just say those people weren't very nice and I had a hymn book thrown at me and yeah, I had all kinds of wonderful things happened and uh, yeah, the, the people who were homeless were, yeah, I think depravity shows up in people of all economic standings. Sometimes you're around rich people who may act a certain way and sometimes you're going to be around poor people who act a certain way. I don't know if there's a, a different, a massively different approach. I think maybe there's some differences in how maybe poor and rich may respond in certain ways, but the depravity is in both. So I, I don't know. I just, at the homeless shelter, I saw a lot of garbage, a lot of stuff, and uh, not, and a lot of an- animosity and hatred towards the very Christians who are trying to give them food and shelter. Um, and like they, It's almost like, hey, you owe me, you give me shelter, and I don't care about your Jesus or your God or your morality or anything else. You give me what you owe me was almost the, the mentality. And they would even complain about the food that they got. Um, I, and, and my daughter uh, did some street ministry where she, they took food to people who are homeless, and she can remember handing a homeless people food, and they just literally threw it away or, or opened it up and said, I don't want it, and, and wouldn't even take the food that was offered because they didn't like it. So I've seen I've seen homeless and, and 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 poor people act just as ungodly as I've seen rich people. It just 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 a different perspective. Again, the bottom line is though, I want you to just realize. See why we're talking about all of this because his preaching has completely abandoned the text. Three, I said this. There was much affluence at the time. The malls were busy. Skyscrapers were being built. Businessmen were praised for their venturing capital. Architects were lauded for their engineering brilliance. Everyone had a burgeoning 401k. All was good, at least on the surface. And at least what for matters for most men, it was good, which, of course, is money. But there was evil in the land. Unrighteousness prevailed, and God sent Micah to call them to repentance. 
And we see our nation drowning in our wealth and ease in our day. And we see our nation's arrogance and pride. When men get wealthy, they tend to get filled with arrogance and pride and do what? Forget God. Forget God. Just as Micah called the people of his day to repentance, we must call the people of our day to repentance. We must do that. We can. Is Micah calling the people of his day to repentance in verses 10 through 15? Is he calling them to repentance or is it saying God is going to, to clean everything up? At some point, God's going to come in and wipe out and destroy all of these things. He's going to alleviate. He's going to purify. He's going to, isn't this a promise throughout the Old Testament that God is going to come and purify Israel? He's going to remove the sin from their midst. He's going to be in their midst. They're going to, they're going to follow him. They're going to obey him. They're going to listen to him. It's in this a constant promise that Israel is going to be purified and be saved and God is going to be in their midst and everything is going to be the way it's supposed to be. I don't, he's turned this into like a commandment. He's, this seems to be, this is what God is going to do. And instead it now is what we must do. It's just insane. Like it's not even dealing with the actual use of words when preaching ignores the actual words of a text in order just to have a sermon instead of actually study the text. That's when you know the preaching in your church is not good. When the words of the text are being ignored simply so that you can have a sermon. See, here's the thing. He's got to end the sermon with something practical. He's got to have those practical lessons. He's got to give those people something. Because you can't just study the text because people were like, well, all we did was study the text. It wasn't anything practical. It wasn't anything useful. Well, no, sometimes you study a text and it may not be quote unquote something practical or useful, but the key is not to get a sermon. The key is to study the text. Are you behind a pulpit to preach sermons? Are you behind the pulpit in order to explain and study the text so that the people can understand the word of God correctly? What is your mission? It's not to preach sermons, it's to study the Bible and let your people understand it. I'm so sick of, a, I've got to have a sermon. Oh, here we go. Well, all of this has not been very practical. Oh, wait, 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 I got practical stuff. I got practical stuff here. Forget that it says God's going to do it. I can now preach against, well, witchcraft and I can preach against wealth, wealthy people. And oh, I can throw out stuff about politics and, and oh, I can make this really practical. And then everyone will walk away and guess what? Everyone's going to remember all of that practical stuff and not have any more understanding of Micah 5 than they did when they walked into that church. Not keep this good news to ourselves. Though Micah was addressing men back in his day, the matter was also for the future and applies to us as the people of God in our day. And notice the result when his people live faithful to him. Verse 15. And I will execute vengeance and anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. How in the world did he just read it that way? See, if you're faithful, then God will then execute vengeance upon the heathen. If you're faithful, how in the world did this just become law-based? You do this, God will do it. Everything in this passage is God is going to do it. 
And all of it, all of it, what he has done is taken 10 through 13, 14 and say, you do it, you do it, you do it, you do it, you do it. And if you do it, this is like a, he's making this a conditional promise. The promise is that one day God's going to bring vengeance. You know, let me just, let me just, let me just think this through. Wait a minute. So if I am faithful, God's going to bring vengeance and destroy and judge people. Hmm. But if I'm not faithful, God won't bring vengeance upon these people. Well, I don't want to see anyone suffer. I don't want to see anyone experience the vengeance of God. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stop being faithful. That's it. I'm just going to stop coming to church. I'm going to stop giving money. I'm going to stop reading my Bible. I'm just going to abandon Christianity. Because if if all it requires, if, if what leads people to suffering vengeance is our faithfulness, then I would rather be unfaithful so that people don't have to suffer vengeance because I don't want anyone to suffer vengeance. Am I the only one? In other words, the Lord conquers in the earth. The nations will be judged that have not heard or, to say it better, or have not listened. Or even to say it better, who have not obeyed his rule. He will judge them. He will execute his vengeance upon them. All nations. All nations. The paradigms changed in our day from what it was. Remember, they were, Israel of old was to bring the people in. Right? They were stationary and the people came in. Christ changed the paradigm. So no, you go out. But the goal has always been the same. The paradigm may have changed, but the goal has always been the same, which is what? God has always wanted to win the nations unto himself. To win the peoples of the earth unto himself. All nations. His is a worldwide conquestorial kingdom. (gasps) Yes. His is a worldwide conquestorial kingdom. Why do you think wicked men make such a big deal about theocracy? Because they hate his rule. What in the world? Is he calling for us to go out to establish a theocracy? Oh, whoa. That just took a weird turn. He wants a theocracy established? Wicked men hate theocracies? I must be wicked. I don't want a theocracy unless it's God ruling physically from the throne in Jerusalem. Because any man-made attempt at theocracy has men killing other people in the name of God based off whatever we think is right and wrong. What in the world has happened to Christianity, man? What in the world? Okay, I know we're, we're okay. I just got to finish this. I am, I don't know what just happened. I really did not see that coming. I did not see that coming. That just like blindsided me. And they fear his rule. You say just one little thing about his kingdom, like the preborn shouldn't be murdered 
or homosexual acts should be outlawed, and they recoil, ah, you want to establish a theocracy. And all the Christians run, no, I don't want to establish a theocracy. Right? We don't want to establish an ecclesiocracy because God has established four great governments in the earth, self-government, family government, church government, and civil government. And each has their own role, function, and jurisdiction. But they're all under his rule. Amen? Oh, man. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. I, 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 that, that makes me a little, this makes me a little sick. Now, I know some of you may disagree with me, but I do not want some law where people are being punished and killed or locked up because of their sexual preferences or their sexual practices. All right. If you're going to want, if you want homosexual, if you want homosexuality outlawed and people punished by the law for homosexuality, then you have to have heterosexuals punished by the law for fornication. You have to then, I mean, how far do we take this? Uh, Any man who looks at a woman with lust and it's discovered like say pornography, do they, are they punished? If a woman does not submit to her husband, should she be punished by the law? Like how I, that I, this, whoa, 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 whoa. Mm. And all of this is coming from Micah five. I, I, I'm, I'm not even sure if we're even in the same Bible anymore. I don't even know if we're in the same religion anymore. Well, I guess he wants like a, a, a Christian version of Sharia law. The Muslims want Sharia law and Christians want their own form of Sharia law. Now let's punish people for scriptural sins. Did Jesus say go forth and set up law to punish people for their sins? No, he said go forth and preach the good news that there is forgiveness because you are a sinner. It's not that we want you locked up and we want you punished. We want you to hear the gospel and be saved. Hey, hey, oh, you're homosexual. Well, before, before, before I give you the gospel, let me call the cops. Hey, hey, we've got some perverts over here who need to be locked up. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Oh, but I'm a pervert too. and You're a pervert. Oh, because we all have different sins related to sexuality in some way, shape, or form. Wow, what in the world has gone on? So we don't want ecclesiocracy. The church shouldn't be doing what the civil government's been given to do by the Lord, right? And the civil government should be doing what the family government was given to do by the Lord. Okay, so the, so the church shouldn't be doing it. The civil government, the civil government should be executing laws based off scripture. Okay. And, and the, and the church, well, okay, I'm glad the church isn't involved, but this is the whole church and state kind of merging concept, which almost always leads to bad things because if the, so just think about this. One of the major crimes would be not just because he wants to go after homosexuals. Let's go after, oh, wait, heresy. Oh, let's do that. Okay, so the civil government is going to punish people for heresy, but that civil government is going to be using which theology in order to determine who's a heretic. I mean, if you're going to punish people for homosexuality, I'm assuming you're going to punish people for heresy. So who's going to, how does this work? Okay, wait, so wait a minute. What if it's a Catholic 
influence civil government. Well, then I'll be punished because I'm a heretic according to Catholicism. And if it's Protestants, then Catholics are going to be punished. So then, oh, wait, that's already been tried in history. And all it leads to is people dying. All right. Important to understand. But we're all, all four great governments are under his rule. And therefore they are to govern according to his rule in the earth. That's extremely important to understand. His rule changes individuals and it changes nations. Scripture is clear. Its intent is toward the nations, not just the personal individual. We live in the midst of Christianity. Everything's personal. Have you personally received Jesus? Have you received him as your personal Savior? Personally, have you personally done that? Okay, all the emphasis on the individual. That's because of pietism in our land. And it is for the individual, his kingdom. He changes individuals, transforms them, regenerates them by the power of his will, makes them new creatures in Christ. But his kingdom is every bit as much for the nations, collectively speaking. His law, word, and gospel were intended to impact all the nations of the earth. This is why Jesus said in Mark 11, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. His final command in Matthew 28 was, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The Apostle Paul said his ministry was, quote, For obedience to the faith among all. All nations, unquote. Romans 1, five. This is why Christ is declared by John to be the ruler over the kings of the earth in Revelation 1.5. Contextually, this was declared to be so then, when John wrote it, not to be applied off in the sweet by and by, as so many are wont to do in our day. Paul says of Christ in 1 Timothy 6.15, who is the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what Paul says of Jesus in 1 Timothy. Paul uses the present tense as there won't be any kings or lords in heaven. In Psalm 2, a messianic psalm for telling of Christ, the Father says to Jesus in verse 8, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. His kingdom not only transforms and impacts the individual, it does so to nations. Christian men down through church history understood that the rule of Christ extended to all the nations of the earth because of what the scriptures declare. To think that the law and word of God would not impact nations, that was an absurdity to them. Now if you think that it does in our day, people hold you suspect. Ooh. I'm talking about the Christian people. Though most Christians today have embraced pietistic thinking, true Christianity understands that Christ and his rule impact both the personal and the public. It is not an either-or. Christian men of old saw things far differently than we do. They believed the civil authorities should kiss the son lest he be angry. Psalm 2. They preached Psalm 2 everywhere they went. 
They sought to win the magistrates of their day to Christ or to at least respect his rule. They understood that the law of God in society was needed and that civil government was supposed to be a picture. Listen to me now. Civil government was supposed to be a picture of God's justice and glory in the earth, causing men to consider matters of eternal salvation. That's huge and totally lost to American Christianity. If they refuse to listen and disobey, his anger, judgment, and vengeance will be dispensed. The Hebrew here in Micah verse 15, where it speaks of the Lord executing vengeance in anger and fury, this is not just a negative. It signifies, listen to me now, it signifies that a ruler secures his sovereignty by defensive vindication. In other words, he keeps the community whole by delivering and vindicating his wronged subjects and by punishing those who do not obey him and do wrong. God does this in the earth. This is the function he has given to the magistrates, to the civil authority, to reward those who do good and punish those who do evil, according to Romans 13. And right now we live under a government that does contrary to his rule. They punish the Lord's loyal subjects and reward those who do wrong and wrong them. That's what you live in the midst of. In the midst of such a setting, our duty, therefore, is to instruct and reprove the magistrates. We are to instruct them from the word of God as to what their duty is in the sight of God. And we are to reprove them when they do wrong. Take them to task. That might be a public protest. It might be posting a video on Facebook. could be a host of things. They must be reproved when they do wrong. They must be called to account according to the law and word of God. We also are not to take vengeance, as it says just before Romans 13. Romans 12, verse 19 says, Do not avenge yourselves. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Amen? In other words, if we were to take vengeance into our own hands, listen to me now, if we were to take vengeance into our own hands, we would be acting in unbelief as we would be directly challenging the sovereign's character and power to defend his interests. If you want to disobey the Lord in that area and take vengeance into your own hands, you're doing an act of unbelief. You're thinking God is incapable of exacting his vengeance in the earth. Understand? You are directly challenging his character and power to defend his interests. So our duty is to be faithful to him. At times that brings us into conflict with the civil authorities, right? We see that in scripture. We see that throughout Christian history. And we take upon ourselves the suffering that they dish out. We don't take vengeance into our own hands. Understand? He will do that in his time as he sees fit. Let's stand up. We'll close in a word of prayer. Wow. I... 
What can be said about that? I don't even understand what just happened. Let me end with this. There was a sermon on Micah 5. Before it was over, it turned into a man's perspective about government. Nothing, in fact, he took Micah 5, a passage that clearly has something to do with Judah and Israel. He made it about us. He took words that clearly say what God is going to do. And he says it's things that we must do. He then says that we must acquire holiness because if we don't, we're not going to see the Lord. And we acquire holiness by what we do and how we purify our lives, which destroys the entire gospel of grace. Then he says that if we don't acquire enough holiness, God will not destroy his enemies. So we are responsible. We must do, we must have, I don't know how how much holiness we have to have. He doesn't explain. And then somehow God's rule must be put into effect right now on the earth. He turned this all about us, destroyed the entire meaning of Micah chapter five. and, and, And this is what I want you to see. This is so very important. Does this, and I'm going to ask this in a question to give, I've already given you your assignment about the Assyrians, but I just really want you to contemplate this. Is there a danger when we have a eschatology that eliminates the fact that Christ will return on a horse with a sword to destroy the enemies and that he will establish an actual rule in Jerusalem for a thousand years to fulfill all of these promises, there, all of these promises will be fulfilled right then. If we remove that and we say somehow God needs to be ruling and reigning right now in a spiritual way, but it must be also manifested in some literal way through the civil government, does that not become very questionable, dangerous Christian nationalism, theocracy, craziness? And turns into something that whenever it's been tried to be applied in church history, just to go through church history, anytime church and state merges, right? Here's the church and the, so the church preaches the scriptures. The state carries out punishment for anyone who doesn't fulfill the scriptures. What? Just go through church history. As someone who studied church history, I can tell you what happens in every single situation. People die, but people die, people die. And whoever's theology becomes dominant, then the government punishes all of those who don't follow that line of theology. So Catholics are killing Protestants, Protestants are killing Catholics, and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And so while everyone's running around, what happens when Muslims What happens when Muslims, their religion becomes dominant? Oh, no. Then they start killing Christians. And Christians like, we're being persecuted. But you would be killing Muslims if you established this kind of theocracy, would you not? Because they would be heretics. That's dangerous, crazy. Run for your absolute life. Don't even look back. Don't even wait. Don't even call the pastor and say you're not coming back. Don't ever go back. That's insanity. And all of that from Micah 5. Like, what what was even the point of preaching Micah 5? What was even the point of preaching Micah 5? Hey, I'm going to preach about my views on government. I'm going to preach about my view of basically having a Christian theocracy in 2022 or whenever the sermon was. That's basically what it, why was it, why did he even bother with Micah 5? 
He he had no intention of giving us any understanding of Micah 5. He was just going through Micah 5 as a window dressing to get to the, boom, I'm going to give you my view of government. Now, all pastors make this mistake. I've done it before. I'll preach something and then realize, you know what? I really wanted to preach this, but I used that text to get to that. Sometimes you're like, you know what? I'm going to talk about this tonight. I'm not even going to pretend. This is what we're, we're going to talk about a topic. I'm not even going to pretend. Now you do that. People go, well, you should be going verse by verse. But you know what? It's not verse by verse preaching when you go verse by verse simply to get to a topic that has nothing to do with the verses that you just covered. That's not verse by verse preaching. That's verse by verse. That's pretending to be verse by verse. Wow, I, I, I don't even know what to say other than this demonstrates to you, hopefully, why hermeneutics really matters. He, he, he abandoned hermeneutics. He took literally that last section that tells us what God is going to do and he made it about what you are supposed to do. That is, I don't even, whatever you even think about his form of government, that is just absolutely abuse of the word of God. And that is not a good thing. All right, we're going to have to stop there. That's going to prove to be controversial. All right. And the reason it's going to be controversial is because a lot of people who listen to this are going to agree with his view of government and absolutely be uh, uh, blown away that I don't agree with it. But that's okay. I don't know why. I don't agree with it. It's just simple. I don't agree with it. I don't. I want the church and state kept as far apart as humanly possible. I just want, I want to be able to preach the gospel and call people to repentance. The government is going to pass laws and those laws are often associated with morality, but I don't want them trying to run around imposing Christian law on unregenerate people. It just, it does, it's never worked in the entire, even when God gave his law to Israel, it didn't work from a human perspective because they still disobeyed it because law never changes the human heart. It's like basic Christianity 101, but okay. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com. I always give my email out because I don't want to hide behind the microphone. Newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. And I definitely know the people on YouTube, you know how to leave your comments. So I don't need to tell you what to do. All right. And all the people on Pandora, yes, I know you're going to get thumbs down, thumbs down. I know that. Okay. So everybody knows how to at least, you you can let your voice be heard in your displeasure and everything that I've just said. But hopefully you're more bothered by the mishandling of Micah chapter five than you are about my, my responding to his view of government. And if you're, if you're more caught up in his view of government than his mishandling of Micah chapter five, that proves the entire problem with this sermon. Is everyone's going to walk away talking about his form of government, not what he did, especially with the last part of Micah chapter five. There we go. All right. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.